Morning, everyone. That's a very special song. I remember when I was um, commissioned as General Secretary of the Baptist Union in 1995, that was a song that I chose that we would sing at that particular service. It was very new at that time. Now it's so well known, it's part of the song choices that we love and means such a great deal to us. Lovely to be back with you and to share. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, love is the greatest. 1 Corinthians 13, whatever translation you've got, just follow on. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way, it's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even if the gift of prophecy reveals only, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when full understanding comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, as in a cloudy mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely." These three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts this morning. The fruit of the Spirit is love. In the 17th century, one of Sweden's popular kings, Gustavus Adolphus, was unexpectedly killed in battle. Apparently, he left no heir to the throne, and there was an unsettled period in Sweden following his death. 
Then one day, a little girl called Christina was presented to the Swedish nobility as the daughter of their late king. There was a great deal of skepticism about this and about her, the legitimacy of that claim until she was brought before the nobles. And when they saw her, every doubt disappeared because she was the spitting image of her father. Now, we saw last week as we gathered together and looked at the fruit of the Spirit that Scripture teaches the world will know that we belong to Jesus when we bear the family likeness of the Son. The person who is a worldly person is characterized by bitter fruit, Galatians 5.19, the desires of the sinful nature. But the person who is spiritual and godly is identified by the beautiful fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The passage is in Galatians 5, 16 to 25, where Paul writes, the desires of your sinful nature are sexual immorality, impurity, lustful desires, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we are members of God's family, He expects our lives to be bearing spiritual fruit, and so, Paul lists the ninefold graces that comprise the fruit of the Spirit. And it's interesting to notice that the term fruit in the original Greek is in the singular. We might think of the fruit of the Spirit as being like a cluster of grapes, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. No, no. It is one fruit, one single fruit. So, every aspect of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control together combine to make the fruit of the Spirit. Paul starts with the most significant of these graces that are part of the fruit, that the spiritual fruit that the believer bears, love. Now, Dr. A.T. Pearson was a great preacher in the 19th century, and he had a, a remarkable definition of the word fruit, the word fruit relating to each of the graces uh, associated uh, with the fruit of the Spirit. He said this, joy is love exulting, peace is love in repose, patience is love on trial, kindness is love in society. Goodness is love in action. Faithfulness is love in endurance. Gentleness is love at school. And self-control is love in discipline. That is an interesting way of looking at the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, saying that every, every aspect Every grace that Paul has lifted is fundamentally an expression of love. So, it's quite interesting 
to think of it in that way as well. But love, as we heard Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the greatest. The greatest is love. And so, when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, the preeminent impression that we get is that of love. And so, we see the definition of love. How do you define love? For many people, love is an emotion that gives you a warm and a happy and a nice feeling deep down inside. The language of the New Testament, common Greek it was, used three common words for love, and they are directly related to feeling or emotions. The first is the word eros, which is the word that describes sensual love, the love between a man and a woman. Today, that word eros has been debased because from it we get the word erotic. But at its heart, eros is a good word, a lovely word, a word that expresses the love that a man and a woman have for one another, a husband and a wife. But that's not the word that Paul uses to describe the fruit of the Spirit. The other word, another word that's used in the New Testament is the word storge. And that's to do with family love. It's, it's the love that parents have for their children. It's the love that a brother has for a sister, for example, or for people have for their aunties and their uncles. It's family love. But that's not the word that Paul uses to describe the love that is the fruit of the Spirit. Another word that's used in the New Testament is the word philia. So many different words for love. Like I was saying to the children, you know, we can say we love mom and dad and we love burgers, but they don't quite mean the same thing. Philia is brotherly love. From that, we get the name Philadelphia, the name of the city in the United States, the city of brotherly love. And it's love for our fellow man. It's the moral quality of love. Um, some of you will remember John Lennon wrote a song called Imagine, and he imagined and dreamed of a day when war and deprivation and social distinctions would cease, and everyone would live together as one in love. Philia. The fourth word that's used in the New Testament is different entirely. It's the word agape, and it speaks of divine love. Eros, storge, and philia are all related to feeling, to how we feel. Agape is related to our will, not to our emotions. It has to do with our will. Agape expresses the love that is the very nature and essence of God Himself. God is love, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4 and 8. C. H. Dodd, Scottish theologian of the 40s and 50s, wrote this, to say God is love 
implies that his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. There's a story that usefully illustrates this. A farmer put a weather vane on the top of his barn, which had the, the verse, God is love. And when a friend said that was a peculiar place to, to put a Scripture verse, his reply was this, it's just to remind me that no matter which way the wind blows, God is love. God is always love. When we're blown and we're buffeted by the winds of adversity, God does not cease to be love. All of God's nature and activity are summed up in that little word, love. And the reason we sometimes have such a problem believing that God is love is because we confuse divine agape love with the other human expressions of love. Agape isn't a natural love, it's a supernatural love. And this supernatural love can only live and flourish in the life that is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Ian Barclay said, the love the Holy Spirit causes to flower in the Christian life is a love that is not naturally resident there. It's a total foreigner to this world. So, only the life that God has transformed, only the life in which the Holy Spirit has taken up His dwelling, only in that life can this agape love, this divine love of God, be exercised. It isn't natural, it's supernatural. It isn't emotional, it's an act of the will. And to understand this kind of love, we have to look at Jesus, because Jesus is the demonstration of that love. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus perfectly expresses the divine love that is God Himself. And as we look at Jesus on the cross, we see there a remarkable demonstration of a sacrificial love. Paul says in Philippians 2.7, Jesus gave up His divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when He appeared in human form, He humbled Himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It must have been incredibly costly for Jesus to surrender His divine privileges in order to come into our world and to be born as a man. He stooped so low to become one of us. Perhaps someone can just help.
His divine privileges in order to come and be born and to become a human being just like us. And, and we need to realize how sacrificial that was for Jesus, incredibly sacrificial, to give up the glory of heaven, to be born uh, in, our, in our world, uh, and to share and experience all the things that you and I experience that are in this fallen world. Having made that transition from heaven to earth, Jesus tells us in John 15, 12, we have to reflect that sacrificial love in our dealings with one another. If Jesus could leave the splendor of heaven and be born amongst us here on earth, we then must live sacrificially in the way that He lived sacrificially. Love each other, He said, in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Even the philosopher Plato had an awareness of a love that was beyond anything that we had experienced here on earth. And he said that the God of love would one day be found lying on the city streets, shoeless, penniless, and homeless. Sacrificial love. That is the love that's demonstrated by Jesus as He came to be amongst us and as He surrendered His life for us on the cross. But also unmerited love. He demonstrates a love that is unmerited. God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We didn't deserve this. But Jesus sent His Son into the world for us. Our lives are an offense to God because we are sinful. We are unlovely people. We look at our own lives sometimes and we feel unlovely. But nevertheless, God loves us. God cares for us. And His is a great love. God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. A great love. And that's the love that is the fruit of the Spirit, a love that is unmerited. We didn't deserve it, and yet He loved us. Peter Gilquist was asked by his friend, why do you love your kids? And he thought, I thought for a minute, and the only answer I could come up with was, because they're mine. They need to do nothing to prove themselves to me. I take them as they are. And God feels the same way about us. He loves us as we are, uh, and He accepts us. He made us. We are His. And that love motivates us to love Him and obey Him in return, an unmerited love. The example of the Father's love so freely poured out for us in His Son, Jesus, inspires us to love others in the same way that we have been loved. John 14, 34, now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you, so you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciple.
not moving on, I'm afraid. So in all our relationships with those we find it hard to get on with and difficult to live with, as well as those we like and to whom we are drawn, we are to love them all in the same way that Christ has loved us. And as we do that, we demonstrate the wonderful fruit of the Spirit called love. And the way that that is expressed in relationship with everyone that we meet is, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. It keeps no record of, wrong, of when it has been wronged. It's never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses its faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. The demonstration of love, it's sacrificial, and it's unmerited, and also it's unconditional. C.S. Lewis said, if God is love, He is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though He has often rebuked us and condemned us, He has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid for us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic most inexorable sense. John says, God showed how much He loved us by sending His only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. It is not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Unconditional love. Outside the city of Sinope in the fourth century lived a Christian called Phocas. Travelers frequently passed his gate, and he'd persuade them to come in and rest in his garden and give them refreshments, and at the same time, he took the opportunity to share his faith. Emperor Diocletian issued an order that Christians were to be put to death. And high on the list issued by magistrates in that area was the name of Phocas of Sinope. When the soldiers arrived at Sinope, hot and weary after a long day's march, they didn't need a lot of encouragement to turn aside into the garden of this man who invited them in to rest and have some refreshment. And when the man asked them why they had come to the city, the officer said they had orders from Rome to execute a local Christian called Phocas, and he asked him if he knew where he lived. Oh, I know him very well, said Phocas. He doesn't live far away at all. Why don't you and your men rest for the night, and I will take you to him in the morning? After the soldiers had retired for the night, Phocas went out into his garden, and he dug a hole large enough to be his grave. When the soldiers awoke at dawn, he revealed to them that he was the man they were looking for, Phocas. 
Soldiers were astonished and said they couldn't put to death a man who had shown them such kindness and hospitality. Focus' reply was this, please do, I am a Christian, and death is not important to me, whereas if you do not fulfill your orders, you'll get into trouble. Think of yourselves. You must do your duty. It will not alter my love and affection for you. So, those soldiers had to execute focus, and they gently lowered his body into the grave he had prepared. An unconditional love for others that gave so much, even to these soldiers, till he had no more to give because he had given it all. Unconditional love. Romans 5 and 5 says, we know how dearly God loves us because He's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. A love that is sacrificial, a love that is unmerited, a love that is unconditional. That is the love that God through the Holy Spirit produces in your life and mine so that we can be reflectors of Jesus in our world today. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit, says Paul, this kind of fruit in our lives. He produces love. And when the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of love in our hearts and lives, then you and I will be able to fulfill Paul's command in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are His dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. To be like Jesus we have to love like Jesus with a love that is sacrificial, that puts others first, with a love that is unmerited even to those who may not be kind, thoughtful, and loving to us, and a love that is unconditional. We love because He first loved us. May God, through His Spirit, produce that fruit of love in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have poured out Your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that that love might characterize our lives the way it characterized the life of Jesus Himself. May we love one another with the love of Jesus, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is unmerited, a love that is unconditional. Help us not just to love those we like, but even to love those we don't like. Help us to love not only those who are kind to us, but those who are unkind to us. 
Help us to love as Jesus has loved. And so bear that fruit of his spirit in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.